Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Dope Black Woman podcast, the podcast where we share stories of black excellence as part of our safe digital sisterhood. I'm Leanne Levos. I'm Roshan. You can call me Shan. I'm Livs. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Dope Black Woman podcast. This episode is particularly special because it takes me back. It gives me some sort of nostalgia. I'm interviewing today or having a chat with Lisa Hano. So welcome. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. But you see, the, and what I tell women all the time is you can have different experiences in life, but it's, it's really a stepping stone to something else. Mm-hmm. I, the world was opened to me at 18 years old. And what I chose to take from it were the networks and the connections and actually spending a lot of time in Africa and South Africa and understanding the cultures and then seeing how, how the Western world indoctrinated so many of us and what I now wanted to do. So I knew I was never going to be a model and I knew I never was going to be an actress. I mean, my, my two degrees are in media and communication studies at the master's level and project management and things of that nature. But in your journey, and sometimes people forget that I, I did that nearly 28 years, nearly 30 years ago now. So it's, it's really, when people introduce me still as the former Miss World, having been in an MP for four terms. And, <laughs> More and longer yeah. than you have been. Yeah. Right. And doing so many other things at that point. And you kind of say, well, even when I used to go to the UN and when ministers used to hear, you know, she was the former Miss World and they, that's what interested them. And I, there is a real symbolic I guess, subconscious affinity mm-hmm. to it. But then it typecasts you. And so what the women do, and what I've, I've had to work really hard to deal with, both men, men view it one way, but the women. Um, so women, you know, want to be smart. They want to be beautiful. These are the narratives that are now coming out. You know, you can be smart, you can be beautiful, you can be sexy. But there's a, still a line that's drawn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll keep you here. So, yeah, you can do the nice things. But, you know, you're not that smart. And right. you, uh, you, you, we don't want you to cross over this line. It's not a beauty contest, by the way. And it's not pageantry. And I sometimes have to sit down and, you know, diplomatically say, that's just colossal BS. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just 
I think um, that's something that certainly many of the women and myself have definitely experienced. I think becoming a part of academia, although I don't refer to myself as an academic at all, is, you know, I would go to conferences and, you know, because you want to put your best foot forward, you dress appropriately. And, and I was always told by colleagues, particularly white men, uh, white philosophers, because I was a philosopher at the time, or I was in philosophy at the time that, oh, you're too pretty to be smart. What are you doing here? Which I, I as you, as you pointed out, I think that spans an experience for many women in terms of if you're not deemed tract attractive enough you're kind of, you know, put to the side and you're not listened to at all. And if you are attractive enough, people will give you the opportunity to speak, but how seriously will they take you? And so I think it's a, a conflicting, it, there, the goalpost is always shifting. I think that's the interesting thing with women is that there is never a standard that once you get there, you are, you've broken through the glass ceiling, as it were, for many women. If you try to kind of maintain within the or survive within the, the confines of what society has put forth. Were you always invested in, in making Jamaica a bit better place or did that come later on? My mother played a seminal role, both, both my parents, but my parents were complete opposites. So my, my father was um, a Lebanese Jamaican who married a black woman in the seventies. And the race relations at that time, even within his own family, um, created tension. The, I grew up in St. Mary in a place called Retreat St. Mary because my father became a farmer. And so my love of animals from a very early age. So we, we reared pigs and chickens and um, my mother was a hairdresser in St. Anne's Bay. So my roots are extremely humble. My father drove a ladder van my entire life. And even, and it was fine, you know, he crashed it and just polished one side of it black and then the other side was left orange. My mother was a part of something called two things. When the Meet the People program started in the seventies where the cruise ships would have persons come off and they would come to people's homes as a part of a more ecotourism venture in the seventies, I was exposed we lived on a, a, a farm by the river in retreat. I was exposed to many different people and that was good. But then I was also, you know, going to grave diggings at four years old, that kind of thing. She was also a part of something called the World Hunger Project, okay. which was trying to eliminate world hunger. And they would come up with these magazines called Shift in the Wind. And I knew from a very early age how many children were malnourished and how many children were starving. And I would have to go on these walks with my mother um, and other people in the communities and you know different places to tell people, you know, get people enrolled in the World Hunger Project and to donate and things to help children around the world. So when I used to say in my own home, I'm hungry, and my mother used to say, You're not hungry, just have an appetite. Mm. You know, tell you what hunger looks like. Yeah. And those things, I think, grew up with me. And then my father was a, a very big community humanitarian. He always had a pickup because for him, it meant people who could not have a car in the country, he would, they yeah. would jump on the back. Yeah. And I grew up without having, until maybe I was, maybe a, teen, maybe a teenager, my parents always just had a pickup. So my mother, my father, and myself would sit in the front. 
and that was that was what it was. So from a very early age, I, I loved my country. I wanted to always work with people. I didn't know how it was going to look, but that's what I wanted to do. And to give back to my country that had helped me so much because I you know, did wrap in who I became and how I could even go to Miss World and Shine was because of what my country did for me. And I only went to school in Jamaica. I was born and grown here. I just left high school and, and that kind of individuality and that kind of identity and, and, and emotional purpose was built by Jamaica. So I, I just always knew I wanted to, to, to give back. That kind of community spirit was, was, was instilled very early. It's interesting actually coming from, as you said, a Lebanese uh, Syrian background and your mom marrying, uh, or your dad marrying a, a black Jamaican woman. Was there any sort of resistance that you felt as a child growing up in Jamaica? Because I know, you know, race and, and identity is a very interesting concept in Jamaica. And everybody is black in a certain sense because we come from a black, predominantly black led culture. But there are nuances that I think many people don't understand. And certainly for me, being Black mixed, I think I was very aware of the difference, but in a way that made me more dedicated to um, promoting and supporting Black women in any way that I could, whether that was taking up the mantle myself or kind of passing the mic as it was necessary and broadening representation, which is what Dope Black Women aims to do now. Um, so what was it like for you? I mean, my my mom also was a Sri Lankan woman who married a black man and as a result was disowned from her family. And, you know, uh, that came with its own consequences for her. So what was it like for you? Because uh, your dad was the one who was Syrian. And I think for women, it's slightly different. Well, I, he went through his baptism of vow. And I think my mother... And looking back, because I, I tend to have a personality that is grace under fire and in adversity. But I, I can remember and vividly remember um, different things that would, would, would give us, and certainly my father, tension. I, my grandmother loved me very much, which was his mother. And, but it was, it was difficult because, and I don't blame his family, but it was not their sociocultural reality at that time because of how the family was to be built. But if you're asking me about just race relations in Jamaica, we subconsciously feed into the notions of prejudice in mm -hmm. this country. And I see it even being a rural and a member of parliament representing rural Jamaicans. Somehow there, and it's, it's, it, it's deeply hurtful to me because I grew up in some instances feeling rejected and I had to be able to deal with that. And what I recognize now is so many poor black people who have no opportunity are invisible in the margins of our country. Yes. And it pains me because they have been invisible for so long. And it's simple things. 
and COVID has just exaggerated it. Mm-hmm. Recently, I went into the pharmacy in a prominent pharmacy in Kingston, and I was actually with my the person who takes care of my home. Mm-hmm. She was standing in the aisle, just looking. I was on the other aisle, and the guard came to her and asked her, why was she staring so long? What did she need? Wow. And I thought, and I listened. And she got very agitated because he didn't come and ask me that. Right. But he asked her. And I also witnessed where people who will walk in will see someone, you know, looking different with probably cornrows or, and walk wide. Now that could be because of the levels of crime that's taking place, but there is still this semiotic approach to judging people by the way they look in our country. Very much so. If you look a particular way, that's your status. And your status as protege says your salary. Yeah. You know, or you, you look a particular way, you, you have a particular status. And those that has to be eroded. Mm-hmm. And it has to be one of the things, and I, I, I'm going to raise this because it's something I did deliberately when I was minister. When we were celebrating Jamaica 50, we set up what was called a Jubilee Village down by the stadium. Mm-hmm. pursuit for seven days leading up to august 6th we were going to have just conversations you could have a tour exhibitions there would be jubilee conversations on history race different things um, we were coming from as a country and all of that would lead up to gala and then you'd have performances outside on the dances and people um showcasing their wares and eaters so it was everybody was coming from all over jamaica and all over the world for seven days basically and we set up for the first time the park and ride the shuttle from king's house to the arena so all of that was done and i remember them coming to me and saying minister are we having a vip area and i said no they said what about vip are you going to have that no we're not having any of that and they looked at me very strangely. And I said, no. I said, I want the same child from Arnett Gardens to sit down with the same child from Cherry Gardens. Yeah. I want the same child from Jungle and the same child from... Um, Jackson. Um, Russia down in, in, in West Milan. Yeah. And to sit and to get to know each other. And I want everybody to be that melting pot. We never had any incidences of crime in there. Yeah. And, and what it did, for me and for, I think, Jamaica was, they didn't even realize what was going on. Mm. Because for the, you never had any divisions, you never had any demarcations. And until we start doing that, where people across the line feel that they have a sense of ownership, everybody has equal entitlement, everybody has the ability to share, then I think we will start turning the curve. And so I, I that was deliberate purpose on my part because I definitely wanted every child, everybody, Jacks Hill, Beverly Hills, mm-hmm. Warwicka Hills, everybody sharing the same space without any kind of demarcation. And it worked. Yeah. And I think there's a there's a real fear that people have in doing that for some reason, maybe because of crime. And it, it's a very easy thing in Jamaica to 
kind of ignore because I think the assumption is is that we don't have racism, we have classism. But in actuality, the roots of classism are very much rooted in, um, you know, are very much tied in with, ish, as you said, perception of color, perception of race, perception of gender. And mm-hmm. I think it's moments like those that allow people to recognize that we are all the same. And, you know, the fact that you were born in a particular place does not make you, is a matter of circumstance and doesn't make you any different from anyone else wherever they were born. I mean, I was doing Somersault years ago. And when you looked back on what the cleaner was publishing at the time, they were publishing whitening greens, you know, as yeah. part of their, and that was back in the days of like Norman Manley, I was doing Somersault on Norman Manley. And that ad popped out at me. And if you speak to women, no. And they, they, will, they will tell you, you know, it, they find that doors, more doors are open for yep. them if they are a, a shade lighter. And it's, it's how we have those conversations to, to empower people and to say, look, there are, there are countries in Africa that have, Nigeria has 200 million very dark people. Yeah. Um, and we need to create that mechanism that women recognize that what they're saying and their voice is more important than actually how they look. But I don't think we will, we can't get there until women ourselves start working together to debunk those kinds of, that kind of hatred of ourselves and insecurity and all of those other things. Yeah, I mean, I think it it works both ways because as much as we can empower ourselves and definitely start to take up space, which is one of the things that we try to do at Dope Black Women as well, the powers that be need to also make that shift. You know, I always say that racism won't shift unless white people begin to make the necessary sacrifices to to acknowledge their own prejudices. And I think uh, similarly, you know, people who come from a privileged background also need to start making those acknowledgements of privilege and those, and start making the steps to make the necessary sacrifices to make space for people from all backgrounds to participate equally in, you know, decision-making processes in politics in, and so on. And I think one of the things that we've been talking about a lot recently in the group is about passing the mic, you know, and making sure that women who are living the experiences that we're talking about, particularly for me in academia and in public policy now, you know, when we're talking about women's rights, gender rights, I want the women to speak for themselves, but it's also about me making space and accommodating them to, to create Absolutely. space for them. And to pay it forward. And it's funny when people ask me, what do I mean about when I used to say renewal, it's really creating those spaces. I, I don't believe I should stay in politics my entire life you have to create space, you do your time and you leave, you know, and you try and get as much done as you can, but you create space for other people to, to come forward because it's dynamic. And I certainly don't have all the ideas and the generations coming up behind me are super bright and super talented and they need to have a place at the table too. Yeah. So I agree with you. So let's, let's talk about your start in politics, actually. So- <laughs> you've let's, we've moved past you kind of winning Miss World and being involved in that world and was there someone in politics that you looked up to what kind of instigated your interest in politics and actually making the step to become a participant well 
it started with PJ Patterson. Mm -hmm. Started with PJ Patterson. Um, and right around the time when he took a big interest in my development, even from Miss World and the conversations that we would have. So I, I, he started inviting me to a lot of the events that he would have when leaders came to Jamaica. Um, I remember when John Rawlings came, when Castro came. So I was a part of that. And he would always say, you know, you're going to be a politician. And I said, I do want to become a politician. And I remember once when Fidel Castro came, and I'll never forget it. I, Fidel saw me on the lawns of Bill Royal and he sent for me and he asked, who is this girl? And Comrade Patterson said, this is, and he introduced me and stuff at the time I was in university. And he asked Comrade Patterson to say, promise me you will get her in politics. Wow. And the rest is history. So I think that certainly for him and then how it really came to a crescendo was um, my husband now, was one of the first business people to really support Portia Simpson Miller and he believed in Portia and we started helping her you know with her campaign and and that kind of thing and she became leader because I just she was so electric and just fabulous and I thought that her ability to work with people could transform our country Anyway, so after she became leader in 2006, I kind of went back to my work and stuff. And then I got a call um, from one of her aides to ask to come and see her. And as I say, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and it's been, it's been, it's been a wild ride. So it, it's interesting because you mentioned PJ Patterson kind of being the person that spearheaded your entry into politics. And one of the things that I've been discussing with other women politicians is kind of the level of competitiveness that takes place between women that are in politics. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit because there aren't that many women in politics. I mean, Portia was one of the first it was the first uh uh prime ministers women prime ministers that we had in jamaica despite having a very strong woman being involved in politics prior to that and even after that um right. yourself included so what has it been like for you as a woman in politics and you know i think for me as well just in terms of my when i think about my career prior to Dope Black Woman, I think I've said this earlier on the podcast, many men have been involved in kind of encouraging me and pushing me forward. And it's only within the past few years when women have had the capacity to kind of support each other and have been more progressive in moving forward that that's been, that I've felt this kind of sisterhood and that's kind of how Dope Black Women emerged. So how has it been for you um, within the People's National Party, but just in general. Uh, okay, so let me let me look at it from two different angles. So in my life growing up, I've had some very positive mentors, mm -hmm. both men and, and women. So growing up in my teenage years, it would have been Whitcliffe Bennett with, um, you know, working with CPTC, doing rapping, making sure that I, I improved my voice. 
as I got to university, it was definitely Agrabone, his teaching, his mentorship, his, his, his ability to spot a critical thinker and pull that string so far out of you that it made you sometimes tired and frustrated because you had to formulate the discipline of exercising that muscle, which was your critical right. side of the brain. So for him, it was pushing me in a direction. Um, and I still miss him terribly today because he was just such a formidable part of my life. And, you know, other persons, you know, there was PJ Patterson in the politics, Katie Knight, you know, I remember when Omar Davies put me on the public accounts committee. Um, but then there are women, there are strong women like Doreen Franson, who owns her own business in, in Jamaica. People like my mother, um, my friends who hold me extremely accountable as women. And in the politics, there, there are people who have stood by my side. So, you know, Natalie Nito, who is not only my friend, but she gives me solid advice. There are people like Donna Scott Motley, who I have a tremendous amount of time for. Um, Mia Motley is somebody I have tremendous respect for. And if I'm, if I'm feeling like I, I need some objective advice, I will pick up the phone and call Prime Minister Mia Motley. So there, there really is a community and I tend to be more I, of a loner. So people think that there's this big team that is on either side, um, but they'll tell you that she writes her own pieces. She does the work. She, I, I'm more of actually an academic than I am. Um, right. So it's, it's, it's being able to sit and, and do that kind of thing. But then, as you rightly say, people always see you and say, well, you can't be, you're, you're, you can't be the person doing it. But to answer your other part of your question about the competitiveness, I don't know that there are enough women to say that there is a rapacious, competitive spirit amongst each other okay. in, the, in the politics. Sometimes I think the women are used to do the bidding of the men. Mm. And a lot of times because, well, not a lot of times, the data is there. So we have more female workers. Yes. The grassroots level and at the, at the electoral level but they never want to transition to becoming MP because it takes resources to get there. That's one, two, other. Some don't want the, the public attacks on their family or themselves. Mm -hmm. And others just don't want to deal with the toxicity or the perceived toxicity of politics. And so some prefer to be a social worker. So typically, sometimes unwittingly, the women become a part of the agendas of the men to get to where they need to get to. I don't see it as a, as a direct swipe against trying to malign another woman. Sometimes it is, but I think because it's so unwitting and because the women are so accustomed to the patriarchy that it's normal for them. So. You know, I've had experiences in my political life where it's easy. I remember one comment was, 
you know, <clears throat> sometimes the right man for the job is just a man. <laughs> wow. And I, and I thought that was my car. I said, wow, that's that's interesting. I've I've had persons that I went to university with who just said, well, you know, we just don't think she's smart enough. It's not her time yet. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you want to shake them and say, do you realize that you're personifying a narrative that will also hold you back? Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the interesting things is that the research is there to say just the exact opposite. You know, women are at the top of the ladder in tertiary education. Um, you know, we are the, we have the most women managers in the world, although they're not necessarily paid uh, as much as their male counterparts. So I think it's obvious that women are capable and it's obvious that women can do the job. And I think, uh, there is there, you know, oftentimes one of the things that has been coming up in politics with certainly within the past five years has been this idea of accommodating the distinction between genders. So things like childcare and when we talk about women's entrepreneurship and making sure that they have the uh, additional services needed to be a part of the space, whatever that space is, whether it's the private sector, whether it's politics. And I mean, you are a mother and you are a wife and you are a businesswoman and a politician and you make time for your constituents. I think anybody who looks at your social media can see very clearly that you can consistently make time for your for your constituents. And, you know, there is this idea of can women have it all? And if you can, um, how do you do it? And so how do you do it? <laughs> I think that's a question that many women would probably have. I, I want to tell you, no, it's mm -hmm. very difficult to have it all. So you can't have your cake and the calories too. Yeah. If you want to eat the cake, you have to take the calories. So the, the, it's difficult because politics is a seven day a week job. Being an MP mm -hmm. requires you to be vigilant seven days a week because at four o'clock in the morning, if a community does not have water, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you have to balance your time between family, home, um, and yourself, because you have to be able to find those quiet moments to, to disconnect from it or you will not grow. So mm -hmm. you don't find a rhythm of how to even read, keep yourself up to date, um, think about proposals for growing the country. It's not only about providing road and water. You have to find a way to solve larger issues and for me to put Jamaica among the global titans of the world. And that's not easy. So how I did it, and the opportunity came at a particular point, and now that Alex is 20 and going into his third year of university, mm -hmm. it's a little easier for me and I had one child. So I, I had the fortunate ability to have the means to be able to take him to school in the morning, but I had a driver who would pick him up in the afternoons. Right. But I made that particular time every morning to make breakfast and take him to school and then thank God when he got his license. And then making sure that my husband and my family and my home is comfortable 
Um, he has a home to come home to. He's taken care of because I'm a traditional wife. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm one of those traditional wives and traditional mothers. So I'm once I close that door and come home, yes, the politics is still with you. But who I am in the political realm and who I am as a wife and a mother are three different women. Yeah. Have to have the ability to have those transitions in your personality to satisfy all of your publics. If not, you will implode emotionally. Yeah. So it requires a tremendous amount of strength and discipline. And it also requires a special personality to be able to do it. <laughs> not everybody can be a politician. Yeah. Don't just look at someone and say, well, you know, she can do it. So I can, it looks easy enough and I can do it too. No, remember, um, the knives are coming behind you. Not in, some are coming in front. So you have to know to pivot. You have to know to be steely. You have to know to be smart, to, to be vigilant, because you are, to, in order to serve people, you are in a, in a realm where everybody's seeking power. Right. And that can corrupt people, and it can corrupt friendships. And once you keep your eyes open, but it takes energy and it takes work. It's interesting what you said, I think, about the fact that you are three different women in many ways. And sometimes the, your personality as a politician shifts from being a tradition because a traditional wife, because I think, you know, many women, myself included, struggle with this idea of you know, the conflict that naturally rises when you are this independent progressive woman who is, you know, fighting for gender equality. But then at the same time, I grew up in a very traditional household as well. And I like the idea of being a caregiver. And I like the idea of taking when, when I do have kids, if I do have kids, um, to be, uh, you know, a a hands-on mom and a hands-on wife, you know, and, and when you get older, well, I remember my grandmother now was a traditional Lebanese and she was strong. So my grandmother, when my grandfather, when she was in Jamaica, um, talked to her a particular way. She told him that she was taking the children for ice cream and put them on a plane and he had to come to Lebanon to get her. <laughs> but my grandmother, from I was seven, because I lived with her for a little bit, her issue was how to take care of your father. And that is how they taught you. Yeah. This is how you take care of your father. This is how you make the bed. This is how you, how yeah. you prepare breakfast. This is how you are supposed to invite people to your home. And from a and that is what um, stuck with me. And But she was strong. And it's okay. I like taking care of my husband and my family. I like... Um, people coming to my home and I'm cooking for them. And then I like being able to go out and being a badass. Yeah. But, and that's, that's, that's just who I am. And I don't have a problem serving, for instance, if I'm in meetings and, you know, I've held leadership positions in the PMP, but at, at meetings, if, if a colleague, I was the one making the coffee and tea. Why? Because when the men do it, then I set the pace. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to sit in a messy place. And it was okay. So while I'm presenting, I'm making the coffee and tea and saying, here, what do you want? And the multitasking of it all, 
I don't have a problem with it. And, and women have to get to their own, I guess, appreciation or comfort zone with it. It's not for everybody. And I would never say to somebody that, you know, I'm imposing what I'm doing on you, you know, but, but this is just who I am. And the people who know me don't misunderstand me. Right. They know me very, very well. And that you can be all of those things without yeah. diminishing the other. Yeah. And I, I've, I've never gotten up and said, you know, I'm, I don't have to tell you I'm strong for you to know I'm strong. Mm. I don't have to ask for your respect in order to get respect. I don't have to tell you all of the things that I'm doing because I'm also a very private person. So there are lots of things that people actually don't see on social media and don't know um, about my life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but they, they make these things up because I think generally sometimes there are persons who already have that creative narrative in their mind. And then when they meet you, they try anything that you say, they try and fit it into what they've already um, justified in their own minds about who you are. So I would say to women to get comfortable in this digital economy and this digital age, everybody has to feels like they have to be on steroids to compete for a marketplace. And mm -hmm. if you don't subscribe to certain forms or preconditions about what the world says you should be, then you don't feel validated. But it's it's that's not it. The person who actually is happiest is a person who is comfortable in her soul. So do the things that you feel comfortable doing and don't worry about how other people judge you by you know preconditioned norms about how the world ought to be going. Yeah. Um, when you talk about kind of obviously women have been at the forefront of your political career in the sense of supporting women, you've spearheaded um, initiatives around state care for children, which are predominantly occupied by young girls and women, and uh, they're certainly the most at risk when it comes to state care or one of the more vulnerable groups when it comes to state care and then also uh, being involved in gender equality and the discussion around kind of reproductive health rights. Is this something that you were done, that was done intentionally or was done because you fell into your lap because you were a woman? And what are your current positions on that now? What's some of the work that you're focusing on now as, a, as an MP? Well, I will always be interested in women and children and the culture of our, our, our country. We did... A lot of work but it's still not enough mm -hmm. to make children feel wholesome and special in Jamaica and where we got to in terms of trying to to give the society a leg up was to start looking at cognitive behavioral therapy mm. and what we, we got the U.S. Embassy to bring down Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris to look at ACEs and how toxic stress and violence was impacting the behavioral patterns of um, children and how that was going to really put a, a, a serious, serious stress on your primary health care. And so all the time while I was minister, I felt that if you did not start with, with giving our children healthy, wholesome opportunities for their development and, and assisting parents, 
And we put those programs in place to the point where we got an entire division financed as a children's division from the Ministry of Finance. And we got a director only for children's affairs. Mm -hmm. And we were aggressive with our approaches, you know, in separating children from adults in correctional facilities and, and putting in place drama and having avenues that they could express themselves and, and making sure that even our state care got more finance and that we put in place music programs to make and a transitional girls home. So even if they, once they left state care and became 18, to get a job and then they could transition to adulthood and then making sure that they went to university. So when we started out, it was only two children in, that we were having qualifying. By the time we left, you know, it was about 60 and over children yeah. who are going to, to university. Those things are important because if you, if, you, if you address the problems that children and women face in a country, and this is not to say that our men are not important, but once you have the mindset of a woman in the right place, they are the ones who carry the microeconomy forward. They're the ones who keep the household going. Mm -hmm. You don't need a stressed mother who doesn't know how they're going to make ends meet and because it impacts on the child. So yeah, I am very committed to those those initiatives. I remember the first time I got up in Parliament and spoke, spoke about abortion, the church, and this church still comes out very um, harshly against any woman who comes out on abortion rights and the right for a woman to determine what happens with her own body. So sitting on that committee, the first committee that was done, I believe it was in 2008, what I recognized was that this abortion argument was taking place or the right to, to terminate a pregnancy from 1975. Yep. And it was the first minister of health who brought it under PNP administration to say, look, these are the things that are happening and this is how we have to solve it. And it has just languished and languished and languished, but it's the same kind of if we do the research, you will see that in, 19, in the 1930s as well, when, when Norman Manley said, look, we're gonna have um, birth control clinics, that people thought it was a mechanism to, to kill black people. And that the, the political time of that time, the JLP Bustamante came out and came out with his own narrative to say, look, oh no, don't take this thing here. Those kinds of things have to stop and women ourselves have to come together with the kinds of alliances that are important to scream above um, ignorant men who don't understand or don't appreciate the health and the physiological differences of a woman. It's not a moral issue for women. Yeah. The church is the moral issue. And so if a woman takes that decision, then the church has a responsibility, I feel, to counsel and to, you know, decide. But it's ultimately, it's a woman's decision for her safety, etc. And she should be allowed to make that decision. Anybody who's going for gastric bypass surgery doesn't ask permission to do it, but it's it's a it's a it's things that you're doing to your body. You know, it's, you're taking out a piece of your body. I mean, um, some might say, well, it's not the same thing, but you don't have to ask for any other the permission of any other surgery. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, similarly, men don't ask the permission of, uh, of anyone for, for the decisions that they make about their own bodies. And I think it's interesting, I was having a discussion with someone yesterday, and we were talking about the fact that actually what this law does is it literally creates an inequality between poorer women and wealthier women, because poorer women just don't have the financial resources to access um, you know, a safe abortion on like wealthier women who may have the access to leave the country or to pay someone off. And so the law itself has little to do with the morality issue and more so just creating an equitable access to choice, which I think is really important. And understanding that actually this, this decision is not one that women enter into lightly. You know, it's not a, it's not an easy thing. It's not a matter of taking birth control and it's not another form of birth control. And I don't, and the assumption that women look at it like that and would engage into having an abortion as lightly as they would, you know, buying a, a, a pack of birth control at the pharmacies is, is, is an offense to, to how women think or, and, and, and who women are. Um, and I think it, you know, reinforces some of the stereotypes that are popular, popular. More than that, it's being colonized by Britain, mm. their laws, they've basically changed. Which they've moved on from, yes. They have moved on. Um, but somehow we are still mentally colonized by their laws. Mm -hmm in the same way, and I don't want to get into this argument because it's, it's something that I'm still researching, but in the same way that many people in the Caribbean don't remember how the Protestant church was started and the church mm -hmm. of England. And it is that so many things about the religious wars of, of history that keeps indoctrinating our people in terms of how we look at even our own legislation. And if persons recognize that we are independent enough, smart enough, um, progressive enough, have enough experience to determine our way forward without the baggage of history, that we may make some, some different decisions. But I also think that because oftentimes politicians are discerned in such a negative light that when the politician puts something forward, it stops right there. So maybe because it has to be voted in parliament by a two thirds majority to repeal this yeah. particular part of, of the act. Many persons don't want to upset their traditional constituents because remember too, that Kingston and St. Andrew is not where elections are won. Right. They're won in rural jurisdictions. And in those jurisdictions, the church is what Yes. many rural folk enjoy and you don't have the ability to control that narrative in a place like Waterbit or another place like Somerton mm -hmm. or a place like Nine Mile where you might have the propaganda being sold in a different way. It's interesting so what would you like to see for women in Jamaica and kind of black women across the diaspora, we have, you know, the statistic is that more Jamaicans live outside of Jamaica than they do in, in, in Jamaica. 
Um, so what is your ultimate goal? What is the dream for, as you see it, for Black women and women in Jamaica more specifically? I think women, Jamaican women, women on the whole are, are, are strong, they're dynamic. And I would like to see them becoming a, a lot more courageous in taking fearless steps in moving forward to set the agenda for what needs to happen in the world. You witnessed even the management of COVID by female leaders yes. very, very differently to men. So I would like to see women pushed into the boardrooms, push into leadership, push into, into spaces where their voice and their determination and their ability to take decision matters and not be afraid of that and not worry because our sensitivities and our sensibilities are different. So whereas a woman would be concerned with how would a person eat? How is that person surviving? It's not only dollars and cents, it's an amalgamation of everything that is holistic for a person's life. So I, I want to see Jamaican women continue to do well. I want to see women on the whole be educated. And that doesn't necessarily mean only going to university, but I want them to pay attention to making sure that they are multidimensional, not unidimensional, because to survive in any world now, whether it's post-COVID or post another um, catastrophic event that's going to happen, women are going to be the force that keeps the world turning. Mm -hmm. So get educated, be fearless. Um, there are some pieces that I've, proposals that I've been making in terms of diaspora bonds, see how you can invest in, in, your, in your country and always put yourself in a position where you can not only survive on your own, but you can prevail. And at the end of it all, be don't be so hard on yourself mm. you know you don't have to take your time make the decisions on your own ultimately it is your decision yes you like you have to satisfy anybody else so take some time for yourself if you have to pull out of the race a little bit just to breathe and exhale that's important don't always feel you have to run somebody else's race at the same time that they're running. It's not about getting there first, it's about getting there better. Right. But what do you think is, or Jamaican women, how do you think we need to be if it is that our women are still so afraid to press charges and to speak out when these issues you, and I realize that it's a lot about financial independence, but it can't only be about that. So what are you picking up in your own research? I think for me, it's about, again, the system making space for women to come forward in a, you know, in a way that makes them feel safe and protected. I think, uh, you know, so many stories of women that I've spoken to don't, you know, which is common, really, they don't want to go to the police officers because they fear retribution. They don't want to go to their church fellows because if they are pregnant, they'll be told to keep the baby. Um, you know, I think the system of patriarchy, as you pointed out in this conversation, is so deeply embedded, not just amongst men, it's systematic, it's, it's indoctrinated into how women think and what they think they're capable or what they think they're, they have access to. And so I think 
for me, a lot of it is creating these systematic changes. And that's why I'm such a proponent of restorative justice, because I do think it provides a community form of justice that people can feel um, safe in accessing or should feel safe in accessing. Um, it's a it's a community driven space that is an alternative to jungle justice, um, but has elements of that community feel that that attracts women to come to jungle justice as well, because there is that community feel there's a reason that women feel safer in the arms of uh, former dons than they do in in the arms of their police officers, and even in it, as it relates to Sissoko and I, I, I commend, uh, you know. DCS on the creation of Sissoka and the purpose behind it, but I do think that um, bar lack of resources, there's a real cultural shift that needs to take place in how we view women and how we uh, understand sexual violence. One of the things that I'm, I'm really passionate about is creating this typology that debunks who a sex offender is. You know, we think about sex offenders in the sense of this kind of leery person working in the corner, waiting, lay waiting a woman. And we know internationally, and certainly within Jamaica, we have one of the highest rates of, rates of incest in the world, or in the region at least. We have the high, second highest rates of femicide in the world. And I think there is this idea, and this is true everywhere, but I think within the context of Jamaica, it's one of the driving forces of sexual violence is this idea that, you know, so many women have been affected or, you know, violated, you know, particularly women, young girls below the age of 16. But nobody um, seems to want to acknowledge that they have been involved in normalizing sexual violence. No one wants to talk about the idea of financial abuse and what holding a woman back financially does in terms of her capacity to get out of a domestic violence situation. You know, I that's think what done. that's what they do. Yeah. And so I think really the shift has to come from within, from, from men as well. You know, I think there does need to be a lot of, we do a lot of work with women in terms of supporting them as victims, but we don't do a lot of work around how we shift men's mindset in terms of how they treat women. And a lot of the work that I've done in the UK around um, with a group called Circles of Support and Accountability does just that. It's working with men to create that shift and have them understand the toxic nature of their behaviors, not just in terms of physical violence against women, but kind of the kind of uh, stereotypes that men hold or this ideal of what of how women are perceived as objectified by men, as subjugated by men, men feeling uncomfortable with women making more money than them, those kinds of things which we don't necessarily attach to sexual violence are things that support and normalize. You know, if you can say, I don't want this woman to work, earn more money than me, it transitions to, oh, but this woman shouldn't be in this position and how did she get past it? And let me bring her back down by sexualizing her or by objectifying her. And right. so I think, yeah, a lot of the work needs to be and done. How do we, one of the critical elements too is to have, because when you find a mother who is overwhelmed by being by not having the kind of financial support in taking care of her four or five children and some of them are boys when you find that they're so overwhelmed that the uncontrollable behavior becomes uh 
mechanism mm -hmm. or an excuse for asking the state to take that child. Yes. How can we get more men to even become mentors of boys? And so even in the classroom where you have boys, how do we get more men to be teaching them? Because at a certain point, and I have a, have a son and I recognize it. After a while, as a mother, as a woman, they will come to you for some things, but at, at a particular age, I don't know how to communicate other things. And I found that my, his father and, my, and his stepfather and really stepped up and were able yeah. to you know, have those kinds of conversations. Um, and they need a strong male to look up to mm -hmm. in terms of having the discussions, et cetera. And I, I wonder if, if we're also missing that link in the conversation. Definitely. Definitely. I think there is a, and that's kind of a more of a preventative element before it gets to the point of uh, trying to unlearn or unpack some of the stereotypes that sit with men who are adults. I think it's a generational thing, but I do think, again, going back to the system, what you mentioned about state care, there are several blocks that are in the way legislatively that prevent men from adopting and fostering children. You know, as a single man, you are not necessarily allowed or you have to jump through multiple hoops to be able to adopt and foster. I think many of the, you know, it's it's part of our cultural expectation that women should take up the mantle of raising children, right? That's mm -hmm. just um, for over 50% of the women of households are female led. And I think, uh, you know, that's something that we ourselves as women normalize. But I think if we just impose a little bit of that responsibility on men um, with the right checks and balances in place, knowing that men are often perpetrators of sexual violence, men will take up the mantle. You know, I do see a generational shift occurring where many of the men that I know are hands-on fathers. They do care about their children. They do want to have those difficult conversations. So I hope that with the generational shift, if we can uh, highlight some of those stories, some of those lived experiences of dads that are doing the right thing. Well, maybe maybe the, the truth is, like other jurisdictions, let's say Singapore, when they wanted more people to get married, they incentivized that. Maybe we should be looking at policy to incentivize and activate these mm -hmm. kinds of, of interventions and to figure out how we can incentivize them. In other words, um, you know, whether you get um, a particular stimulus mm -hmm. by, by having, and this is, this is just hypothetical, but having um, a two-parent household um, to grow your child, et cetera. So these are the kinds of progressive conversations that we have to be looking at if we want to move the society. It's not enough to just talk about it. There has to be a real political will to say, if we want to get here by 2030 or 2040, here are the mechanisms and families will have to take us there. You know, citizens who are, have the ability to do A, B, C and in order to get this, the citizens to do A, B and C, they need the back end support from the state 
in these ways. And in order to give them that, we're going to have to put these things in place and hold everybody accountable where it's concerned. I think it's also about un addressing the underlying reasons that more men are in prison, Under uh, addressing some of the underlying reasons that more men between the ages of 16 and 25 are perpetrators of homicide and violent uh, crimes. You know, I think we have a tendency to demonize our offenders, our, our, the incarcerated, instead of understanding the real vulnerabilities that led them to the space that they're currently yeah. in. Yeah. And I think the yeah. research is important. I think we assume that we know why people offend uh, or you know, enact sexual violence against women when really it is a cultural thing that needs very context specific research. And what I don't want to do is kind of use that as a reason to normalize um, what a family should look like, you know, with the emergence of the LGBTQ plus community in Jamaica, with the emergence of single parent households, which we assume are largely female headed, but there are many men who are single and want to adopt. There are many, uh, you know, gay partners. There are many disabled men, many disabled women that want to lead functional, normal lives and should be given the, the right tools to do so. And I think that's where the legislation needs to lead is making sure that we are centering the margins in terms of looking at those who are most at risk. So disabled, young girls, young boys, because Jamaican, young Jamaican men are marginalized in, in a particular sense in different ways than women are. And making sure that the legislation addresses those vulnerabilities so they can have the equal playing field and be able to take up space um, where they should be. So I think I think that's that for me, that's where the legislation should be going, because now the legislation that we create is just very vague and open to discretion and doesn't have even when we think about crime legislation and, and sentencing, many of our acts are without guiding sentencing guidelines, you know, and they fail to take into consideration context and again the vulnerabilities that lead persons into place in into the places of crime and vulnerability and I think without those we are. Uh, and without the shift in the generation, we're, we're at the behest of the right judge or at the behest of the yeah. right lawyer. And, and the, 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 generation the generational misinterpretations and the generational prescriptions of what you ought to be doing versus what mine did. Yes. That has, to, that has to change. There has to be some degree of dialogue and convergence. I'm not saying that you need to push out everything that was you know, traditional and old and, and things of that nature because there is institutional memory and there are some things that are important, but everybody has to sit at the table and we're not gonna progress if because you think you're older and you were wiser that what we're seeing with the data, it has completely shifted and you've seen it in politics as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if, it, if the politics has shifted and healthcare has shifted and it, artificial intelligence is now you know, taking, doing operations and we're living in a highly technological age and stage, then we have to shift our modus operandi to, to make sure that our people are equipped for those times too. And it will require having persons that are, are thinking persons. 
-hmm. and that are prepared for the for the future generation of all. No, definitely. Thank you so much. This has been really an enlightening conversation and really inspiring in many ways. And, you know, so many times women working in advocacy or politics, they are, burnout is a real thing. And so some of the real gems that you've left with me, and I'm sure some of the other women who will be listening to this about taking time for yourself and being so comfortable in your own skin is really yeah. important. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We will be back with you next week, but until then, stay blessed and unapologetically Black. All the way Black. Blackity Black. And Black Dance <laughs>